following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. What we read this past week in, in Shul was Parshat B'Shalach, which is the beginning of the Exodus. Um, finally, they're leaving Egypt. And, of course, after God splits the sea for them and everything is done for them, all these uh, miracles, the first thing the Jews do is complain about uh, where's the beef? <laughs> and as you know, they, they wanted uh, food stuck in the desert and uh, they were going to be there for a while, 40 years. So God goes ahead and tells them he's going to give them what's known as the, ma- as the, man, the mana. And it's fascinating to, uh, to read about there's a lot written about it here in the Torah itself, in, in this parsha, and also in Deuteronomy. It's actually three places the man is mentioned in the Torah. And you see a lot of interesting, uh, as we'll see, um, lessons that can be learned, I think, as when it comes to um, one's livelihood and what type of career, how one should view wealth, etc., is, is much is written about the lessons from the man. I thought it would be a good opportunity to go through that. Um, but what's interesting is, as we'll see, the man wasn't, sounds like it's a great thing. The man was, it just fell from the heavens. They didn't have to worry about the livelihood. But as we'll see, the Torah uses um, two, uh, two different types of language. First of all, the Torah uses language of, I'll test you. If you look in, inside your handouts here on the top of the page, um, this is from Deuteronomy, not from this past week's parasha from Deuteronomy. It says, who, um, God says, who fed you with man in the desert, which your forefathers did not know, in order to afflict you. So the, the uh, Torah calls, God himself calls the manna an affliction. Okay, it says in Hebrew the term is inui, an affliction. And in order to test you, to benefit you in your end. So the question is, why, what exactly, first of all, what was the test of the manna? And secondly, what was the affliction? Why would you think it's an affliction? On the contrary, getting everything you need provided for you at your doorstep, um, Life is great. Why would it be an affliction? Those are two basic questions. As we'll see, there's many more questions. Um, so just to explain a little bit about the man, the Torah itself explains. Basically, it was a, sort of a, a, what we today we know it as tofu. Um, uh, but it, basically, that's what it was. Just on, to give a side plug, there's a new kosher vegetarian restaurant opened in uh, Houston, and right near your house. It's on Chimney Rock in Bel Air. So I'm getting to know the ins and outs of tofu. Um, right, right past the triangle on Chimurak. You see on the left side. It's a vegan vegetarian. It's called green, red, green vegetarian. Okay, very good food. I'll try tonight. Okay, good. It not. <laughs> yes, yes, you'll like it. You want your healthy. Some of it. Green or vegan? I yeah. They're, they're from Santa. Green, San green uh, vegetarian. Green vegetarian. One year Yeah. Two of them, right? Same one. They opened the branch. Okay. So. Anyways, so the one, so I'm getting to. This is my first exposure to fried tofu and uh, baked tofu, and they really that's what the man was. As the the Torah talks about the man was, it was basically it wasn't it was a food that came down. It was a piece of. Thing. It says it looked like it was white, and it's like the color of coriander seed, whatever that is. Um, the Torah describes it, and uh, what, what would happen was a layer of dew would fall in the morning, and then on top of that, this mana would fall, and then on top of that, another layer of dew to cover it, to protect it. Okay, so you had, um, and that, by the way, this is also the reason on Shabbat, um, you're supposed to have two loaves of bread at your Shabbat table, is because the Torah describes on Friday, every day they would get exactly enough man for the members of their household, exactly enough food, um, and they couldn't save it. it. Says the Torah talks about they couldn't save it over to the next night. If they would save it over for the next day, it would turn wormy. It wouldn't stay. Only would stay till the next morning. Um, except on Friday, it's actually Friday. It says that it uh, we get a double portion because in Shabbat the man wouldn't fall. That's why we do our lecha mishnah in our house when you have a, a Shabbat meal. You're supposed to have two loaves of bread, two chal. The reason is because it's to, it's to remember the mud. That's also why we cover it. One of the reasons we cover it is because it had a layer of dew on top and on the bottom. So you put 
that's all comes from from this portion of the man. Um, what's interesting is so it says the Medrash explains that the manna, what did it taste like? It, it was it was tofu. It could taste like whatever you want. Whatever you imagined it to be. So if you wanted uh, filet mignon, you had it, you fantasized filet mignon and it t- tasted like filet mignon. You wanted um, kale salad, it tasted like kale salad. Whatever you whatever your uh, floats your boat, so to speak. Okay, so so that's what it, um, it says about the mind. So now what exactly was the affliction? So it's interesting, so they begin here, it says um, quote number one on the sheet, after the verses, it says Rabami Rabasi, this is in the Talmud in in Trakta Yuma. Um, it's interesting, in the tract of Yuma is about Yom Kippur. Um, it discusses that's what the name Yom, Yoma means the day, like Yom means the day of. So the tract that is called Yoma, the day, the day, which is the day of Yom Kippur. And the question is, the to- it's what's interesting is people don't know this, the Torah never says anywhere to fast on Yom Kippur. It doesn't say anywhere in the Torah about fasting, and not eating. It's all, the Torah just says you shall afflict yourselves. Okay, and, and the Talmud discusses what's, what's the definition of affliction. Okay, affliction could mean uh, in Houston City out in the heat for for ten hours, right? Some people, the rabbi sermon is affliction, right? Some people, uh, they're uh, going to their mother-in-law for Yom Kippur would be affliction, right? So there's many uh, definitions of affliction. So the Talmud dis- is discussing what's the Torah when the Torah says afflict yourselves. What does it mean? So it actually, so usually when we don't know what a word means in the Torah, we don't know what a term means. So we find another place the Torah uses a similar term. And we apply that term to the, say the meaning, which we know of the context. In the other place, we apply it here. So the Torah brings the man, the man as an example. See that affliction has to do with lack of food, because the, the God refers to the man as an affliction. So what does it mean? So, so the Talmud here, if you look in quote one, it says, Rabbi Rabasi, debate why eating the manna was an affliction. Okay, so uh, opinion number one says, the reason why it was an affliction was because of what we mentioned. Torah says you couldn't save it to the next day. It's a fascinating concept um, in business ethics in general, in human nature, is people are, ne- even if you have whatever you need today, people are always nervous about tomorrow. It's human nature. They always worry about your 501k, your kid's college fund, your grandchildren's college fund, your great-grandchildren's college fund. It's, not, it's endless. You're always worrying about the future. So this person could be, have everything he needs today, all his needs are taken care of, he'd still be concerned about tomorrow. The problem with the mana says the first opinion is this was an affliction. This was the affliction because since you couldn't save it, you got the exact amount you needed for today, and you couldn't put it away for people who just were inside. They couldn't, they couldn't live like that. People couldn't live day to day. You don't know where you're going to get your mortgage payment at the end of the month. Even, even there was no control. Right, exactly. Uh-huh. So, and, and that was an affliction, says the first opinion. Mm-hmm. It says one who has bread in his basket cannot be compared to one who does not have bread in the basket. Meaning, so even though I ha- have enough food for today, but if I don't have bread in my basket for tomorrow, then I'm going to be concerned, which is a normal part of human nature. And as we see, that was part of the, uh, even part of the test. It said, it was known, manna was known as the bread of faith. Because you had to have faith that mm-hmm. it's going to come again tomorrow. You had no choice in the matter. Because again, you couldn't put it away. You couldn't, well, it didn't stay till tomorrow. So the fact is you had, you need to take care of today, but you still had to believe that God's going to provide tomorrow the same manna. Okay, so that's opinion number one as to why the affliction was it was so against human nature, which is to always be worried about tomorrow. Which is again, it's a fascinating concept within, um, within, I guess, the world of, of economics. That we're never satisfied. We're not. We're not, not going to be satisfied with what we have today per se. Um, second opinion says another fascinating thing, not related to business per se, but he says, he says like this. He says. Um, one who sees and eats cannot t- compare to one who does not see and eat. Right, so the point is like this. He's saying if part of the experience of eating, that's why in this class we know that the presentation is very good on the food. So the part, a 90% of, of eating is the presentation. Right? When you say you go to a good restaurant, usually it doesn't necessarily mean how the food tasted per se, because you stay home, your wife or you can probably cook a better meal than uh, that they cook in the restaurant. But it's the presentation fact of the ambiance and how it's presented on the plate. Right, so that's, a, that's 90% of eating. So we, what they're saying is since, like was, as we mentioned, man was like tofu, it looked like a piece of tofu, just this white blob. It might have tasted like anything they wanted, but that was an affliction. Not being able to experience and see um, presentation, 
seeing what you eat is, is an affliction. So it says the manna had this affliction, the fact that they, it wasn't the same. You couldn't, and as a matter of fact, the Gemara goes on to say, Joseph said, this is an, Joseph, I mean, Joseph was blind, by the way. Talmud says in a different place he was blind. He said, this is an allusion to the reason blind people eat without becoming satisfied. He said, since you can't see your food, I don't know if this is true, I never asked a blind person, but you can't um, become totally satiated because part of the eating experience is the seeing, is seeing and experiencing the food. And if you can't see it, you're just eating a white blob. It's not the same. It's not, you're not going to feel as good after your meal as, as, uh, as if you ate a nice juicy steak where you see the juices coming out as you slice it. Okay, so it might have tasted like filet mignon, but it wasn't the same. That's why I always say, if you go to Whole Foods, I'm insulted in the shops in Whole Foods, but uh, people always look depressed there. Because, you know, when, uh, when you're buying all the health food, and it's, not, it's not the same. Could be tofu tastes the same. I have a friend who's, who's vegetarian. He, for, for Thanksgiving, he showed me made a tofu turkey. Tofu is tofu and something else in black beans. It's shaped like a turkey, carved it out and everything. Still depressing. At the end of the day, don't even tell you that. So did I understand you to say? Just want to be sure that I heard it correctly. Your observation is that people who are shopping at Whole Foods look depressed. Yes, I did say. <laughs> okay. You never noticed that. It could be it's because of the prices. I was just going to say, that's probably I, one I, reason. The I, prices I would, are high. I would argue the opposite, that people who go to Whole Foods are paying up for the privilege of going there. And uh, economic studies would predict that they have a higher degree of satisfaction for the same goods. Um, because... And the presentation, hopefully, is done beautifully. No, right. presentation, because yeah, they, but I'm they, saying they, the point they is... They've reached the... For the same reason I, I would, you know, by analogy, say that people who go to Starbucks who are paying $4 for a cup of coffee believe they're getting a higher value. And so economics would argue that they they have a higher level of satisfaction than the folks who are going to it wasn't a scientific statement, but, but let me explain what I meant. <laughs> well, I realize <laughs> you frequently don't burn yourself yes. with any science, so... Yes, no, it's not a scientific statement. What I meant was, if you, the bottom line is, let's say, like this restaurant. Okay. I, I went to this green <laughs> vegetarian on Friday. I went out, actually, had lunch with Brian Strauss, and, uh, and I got him to go to Kosher restaurant. And uh, he... I'm saying I ordered the chicken, uh, chicken fried steak. <laughs> it wasn't right, so it was, uh, you know, it's soybean chicken. It tasted good, but it's not, it's not a good schnitzel you're gonna get in uh, my pizza. It's not the same. Bottom line, meaning you, you, you're, of course, you're eating healthy. You might feel good by yourself the fact you're eating healthy, but you're still not as high. Listen, people on diets feel good they're on the diet. They're eating healthier, but they're not satiated at the end of the meal. That's the fact. So I'm saying my point was the same in whole foods. You're, you're getting you're getting soybeans. It's very nice. It's, it's not a steak. Not you're, a steak. you're not necessarily restricted to soybeans at Whole Foods. You can buy a range of things. But, you can buy a steak uh, at Whole Foods. You can buy a, a steak. Yeah, and you can pay a all premium the fattest price. Yeah, all right. And <laughs> again, I argued that I think no, the see, most people they're, they're going to Whole Foods. I think it's the opposite. They're going to Whole Foods to buy the healthy stuff. The thing is, we're having uh, you know rice. Ice cream is not the same as Brian. <laughs> ben and Jerry's, let's face it. Let's be honest. I'm trying to be honest. Are they happier at, at Walmart or HEB? Yeah, you're getting good, real food. Oh, with chemicals in it. Rabbi, it is important when you, throw out, when you throw out what you think are, are science that. You know, no, I'm saying my observation. This right, is my just, personal just your my observation. I said that very clearly. More visible at Walmart. <laughs> it depends which Walmart. <laughs> now, Walmart is something else. That's a whole different right, theology. Keep moving along. That's a whole different philosophy. Okay, so um, so again, so there was two aspects here. By the way, the Talmud I didn't put it down here because this is a family lunch, but the Talmud goes on to discuss here that seeing, sometimes seeing is actually fantasizing, which is really what happened with the money. Is better than the actual thing. Discusses in the in the context of women. Mm. The Gemara says that that sometimes it says um, looking at a pretty woman is sometimes better than the act itself. Now, 
We're not going to go on that tangent. It's not related to business. That's another class. That's another. Yeah, that's, that, is, that is another class. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what the Talmud maybe, discusses. Maybe we could help you with that as well. <laughs> Talmud discusses that, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so uh, fascinating. You never get a chance to go to that class. That's a good class. Um, okay, so, so, um, so I, saw one, I saw actually one beautiful explanation. It speaks about Namana in the context of of um, a certain sense, if you think about it, that this is what this is a Hasidic explanation I saw from um, Menachem Mendel of Rimenov, lived in the early 1800s I believe, in Russia. So he describes the mana as he says it was a fascinating thing. It took away, so you know, this this week's parsha is the Ten Commandments. Where actually, I think we spoke about it last year. The concept of envy, jealousy is one of the prohibitions. Being jealous of your neighbor is one of the prohibitions in the Ten Commandments. He says one of the aspects of the mana, the purpose of the mana was to remove all aspects of, of, of envy, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And there was no keeping up with the Joneses. Everyone had to say, you didn't have a job. You got your mana right to your doorstep. Right? It came to, you, came to the front of your house. It was delivered every morning with the paper, the morning paper. And everyone got this exactly amount, yeah. exact amount for their family. So there was no, well, he got more. He's either having a better meal. He went to a better restaurant. Yeah. You know, his... his as far as materialism was concerned, it removed all aspects of being jealous, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, because everyone was equal. It was an equalizer to some extent. Yeah. Did, did this go on in Mana for 40 years? 40 years, yeah. Oh. Imagine having tofu straight. <laughs> no, I can't imagine <laughs> That's exactly my point. That was what I was saying. <laughs> so, so they're making uh, bread too or no? Uh, no, this man was ever so bread. Forty years, years, yeah. I mean, but uh, again, it could taste whatever you want. Wow. So the point is, he discusses that. Uh, so it took away that concept, the concept of keeping up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm. Of you know, I have a nicer car, my car, your car. Food-wise, everything was everyone was equal in that sense. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. It says a fascinating thing. The Torah discusses. You know, if you look at the language of the verses, there was no room here, so I didn't put all the verses on. But it discusses where how the mana fell. So it's the Gemara and the Talmud explains and expounds on it that because there's three different applications it seems the Torah discusses some says it fell on their doorstep then others it says they walked out to receive the mana and others it says they traveled they went they went a little further the question is where did, how did the mana fall so the Talmud says based on your spiritual level so to speak that's where the mana came meaning if your highest spiritual level the mana came right at your doorstep. If you weren't such a great, you know, so spiritual, it came a little further. You had to walk, exert a little more effort, and and for people who are evil, they had to walk like a mile to get to get their money. That's what, that's what the Talmud says. So the so he says. Yeah. <laughs> just just to point out what I know you're yes. thinking is the health benefits would be greatest if the food was delivered a mile from you. Actually, you had to move so to get it as opposed so to... So clearly this was a miraculous food. The Talmud says, actually, <laughs> that, they, that they, didn't, they, they didn't even have to go to the bathroom after eating the mile. We so can talk you about... Four, so you talk about I don't know if they put on weight. I don't know exactly how that... Well, you're talking about the uh, not beneficial aspects of that, but that's also... <laughs> that'll be covered in the sex class for you as well. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, so that's a valid point. You're saying that maybe exercise is a good thing. That's, that's true. Um, so, how are you? So, this point. So the, uh, so the, so this, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Vrimena explains like this. He says, he says, so even though from the, from the, uh, as far as envy is concerned, he says, from the materialistic perspective, it was irrelevant because there was no envy because everyone had the same thing. But spiritually, he says, the mana did sort of judge you spiritually in that sense. And therefore, he says, he says, what you see is a fascinating thing, that envy, not all envy is bad. Meaning envy in spiritual matters is a good thing. Yeah. Um, it's actually a Mishnah in The Mishnah says, the Mishnah says in Pirkei Avot that, um, it says, Kinat uh, Sofrim, I put it down here, number C, it's in the Talmud, it says, Kinat Sofrim, the jealousy of scholars, increases wisdom. It's a fascinating thing, meaning that, let's say, um, to have a 
contest in education, educational contest where there's jealousy, and where you have uh, testing, let's say we have today in America, standardized testing, SATs, that's not a bad thing, even though, listen, I'm going to be jealous of the other person because they got a better mark, but that increases wisdom. So meaning that jealousy, certain types of envy is a good thing. So spiritual envy is also a good thing. Meaning if, if I, this is why, by the way, this is a fascinating thing. The law is, and this is brought in the Code of Jewish Law, it says normally, as we discussed many times in this class, there's a, there's a prohibition, um, although we believe in, in capitalism, but there's a limit, to, there's a cap on capitalism, in the sense of, if you have a dry cleaner, according to Jewish law at least, you have a, a dry cleaner, someone cannot open a dry cleaner right next door, assuming they're going to steal your customers. They're gonna, you're not going to have, there's not enough of a customer base for both. Okay, if there's enough customers for everyone, then I can open right next door. But assuming there's not, I can't open a store with the intention of literally stealing your customers away, uh, unless it's a better, more quality product. I'm selling something else, but, uh, or I mean, even the same product, it's better quality. So that's called a sagat rule. I'm encroaching, you're not going to encroach on someone else's business. But, but, <coughs> uh, the law says, let's say I have a synagogue, or let's say I have a, a yeshiva, or a school, a Jewish day school, you're allowed to open one up right next door. Another one, even though you're going to take away students from that, because when it, because of this law, because the concept of jealousy between scholars increases increases wisdom, meaning it's it's we we are okay with that. We're okay with you taking someone else's spiritual business away if it's going to increase the spiritual level, so to speak. So if I have one school, and this came up in Houston more than once, where <laughs> you have one school or a synagogue, even what's going on, say I don't want to get into politics of Emmanuel. It's happening now in the city with Emmanuel. So technically speaking, according to Jewish law, um, that's okay. Assuming it's going to bring up the spiritual. And if meaning, it doesn't bring the spiritual, are you then obligated to stop? No, the back. point is competition is going to increase because the old place, the old school is going to become better. The old shul is going to <coughs> is going to increase more, have more educational classes. They're going to always, they're going to try to be better. The rabbi's going to, you know, whatever they're going to. Whatever they're going to do to increase the level. So therefore, that's a good thing. Envy, when it comes to spiritual matters, is a good thing. That's what he says you see from the mana. Because the fact that we're saying God put it in a place where people now are looking, hey, look, mm-hmm. well, the neighbor has got it on yeah. his doorstep. Yeah. I didn't get it on my doorstep. I'm, 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 I better shape up. So what was my question? question is, with regard to jealousy then, is, is that this concept of it being okay in order to increase knowledge and spirituality, would that be like the exception to the rule? In the Torah, with regard to that, because you know most other aspects, you know, in most other situations, you know, jealousy tends to be a negative thing. Right. Is that, is that saying, correct? Is that how the Torah would look at it? Exactly. Saying envy in the context, in certain contexts, is okay, but only these, this specific. Only one. this. Yeah. Right. Normally, envy this. is okay. is, is, is uh, one of the Ten Commandments. Okay. It's prohibition. That's what we're saying. So, mm-hmm. so you see from the mana in this case that that's how it was applied. Meaning that's how he's he's saying you see this concept of. Since the mana was delivered based on their, and the effort exerted based on the proportion of one's spiritual status, that envy, causing envy in that sphere is fine. That's a good thing. The same would apply, like we said, in synagogues. Competition makes better business. So it depends. So again, competition is fine. But not if I'm stealing away someone else's, literally, his livelihood. Again, if you're giving a better product, a bit different quality, that's okay. Well, let's say I have dry cleaner, but I'm, but I have better service. Okay, there's two dry cleaners, but one has, uh, you know, I give it to them by 5 p.m. The next door doesn't do it. Right. So that's price, fine. Then you're allowed the price, to open the business. The price is the same. Yes. The point is, I'm allowed to. We're not saying competition is prohibited. What we're saying is to intently do the same exact thing you're doing, yeah, like taking away yeah, your customer base. That's what's encroaching on the business. No matter what city you go to, okay, all the different car dealerships are all in. But they're all together. Oh, so that's something else. So we spoke so about that here. So that's something else. One, uh, so let me explain. They talk about the Shachanach says jewelry is a prime example. You have the no, so not no, no, no. It is. You have a, you have a district like in Manhattan. You know, you have even Houston also the jewelry building, right? So if you have a place that having multiple businesses of the same type increases business because now it's the jewelry it's district convenient. or the garment district or the that that increases, that's fine. Right. And it says it's okay. But I'm saying, we're talking about, you know, you have a mom and shop pop, um, pop shop on the corner, and someone comes and, you know, you have a bodega, and someone opens a bodega next door. So if they're serving a different menu, a restaurant, if they have a different menu, that's fine. If they're serving the same exact thing, so that, according to Jewish law, and they're going to take, and there's not enough customers for both, it's a small town, 
there's not enough customers for both, then that's good. If there's enough customers for both, that's fine, also. Okay. Using a dry clear example. Yeah. If the one, the new one next door says service by five o'clock, right? That's how it differentiates. So the two can be open, as you say. Yeah, yeah I mean, in tech, uh, whatever, and I don't in know. Theory, in yes. theory. Yes. Does that prevent now the original shop from changing his service no, to a five? No. That's fine. That's it. Well, that would be direct competition. Yeah, but I'm saying now he's he's allowed to improve his product. Can't now, say now the guy can't improve. I <laughs> can't improve. But I'm saying the point is, encroaching on someone's business means specifically your goal is to take away their customers. To put them out of business. Right, that's right. a problem. Yeah. Meaning, which which by the way, in, in um, I, I know I was, I was subpoenaed once to a case. I mean, same applies in American law in certain instances. Meaning, I can't take get someone's customer list if I worked in a in a place, and I go ahead and take their customer list and open a new place. It's also that's that's, a, that's, right, that's a saying target their customers. Um, no, so that's the, I'm saying so it's a similar concept in, in Jewish law. But the point is what we're saying is it's not applicable to a yeshiva or a shul or places like that. There's no concept of what we call encroaching on someone else's business. You can do it, okay? First, except if it's an outreach organization. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So that's another important thing. By the way, just uh, again, I'm not necessarily on topic. One of the other things that Talmud discusses about the month, people had a problem. It was, it was, in other ways, it judged people spiritually, which was a very scary concept. That means since it was given for the exact members of your household, money was the exact exact portions fell. So that means, let's say, uh, the Talmud says, your child is really the your neighbors or the mailman. Okay, was the mailman's son. So the mailman would be getting extra portions at his at his front door, and you would be getting less portions. People realize something's going on over here, Because right? <laughs> again, it was it was portioned exactly for the members of the household. So this is before DNA testing. So if uh, if uh, so, the Talmud says if you didn't, you know, it's all of a sudden the neighbor would be getting. Uh, he had he had one kid. You had three kids, but the neighbor's getting three portions. So he knew something was up. I thought it was by household as opposed to who exactly yeah. was the DNA. Yeah. Oh, it was by household. That's well, the point. No, right. the child's in the you, household. It's a child's no, no, no. In the, in the milkman's household, though. The father, the father actually is talking about this. No, but the point is, no, they discussed, by the way, I saw somewhere, I didn't put it down, but you see from here, one of the lessons they learned is also that it's the father's obligation to support his, his wife and kids. See that from here. Because the mana fell by the father, whoever the father was. Fell based on the fun. So Rabbi, if the mon is falling out in the field, right, like you said, no, so the a little less righteous. Right. No, but it wasn't. Well, it well, was, yeah. Who knows? Right. Good question. Mon is whose? It fell the field. No, no, no. So it fell in front of your tent. The question well, is how far in front of your tent was it? Well, you know, people ten feet next door to each other, and they're not righteous, and the mon is falling in some field a mile away. Okay, who good, knows? Good, good question. Who? God barcoded it. You put your, you know, phone on it and you understood. <laughs> yeah. It was adjusted though, wasn't it? By, if you took too much, you kind of disappeared and you didn't take enough. Yeah, so we're going to say that, right. So basically, oh, really? right, if you try to get extra, right. try to take more than you needed, it, would, it wouldn't work. Or if you took too little, it, would, it wouldn't work. So we're going to talk about it. So, so now, um, so just, it was just, obviously this is miraculous. This is all Medrash. It doesn't say this explicitly in the Torah. Uh, but the point is that there was, in a certain sense, and that's what I told you, it was a spiritual, the mana was a spiritual food in, in that sense. And it was, it judged you spiritually. You sort of got judged, and, which, you know, wasn't, in a certain sense, one could say that was the affliction. No one, no one, likes, being, no one likes being judged, especially, you know, things that are in the privacy of your home. No one likes being judged on that. Um, so, so I found here, so let's discuss some other points here. So it says, um, okay, so number, if you go down to the bottom, bottom paragraph on the left side, so it says, mana lessons for parnas. Parnas is the Hebrew word for, for income, for your livelihood. Okay, literally, parnasa means your livelihood. Okay, so, um, so I found various, like I said, a lot of discussion about these various commentaries discussing the lessons we learn from the mana as far as we have to view for, as far as from the career perspective and what exactly the test was. So it says there are, there are two groups of people who struggle with their livelihood. There are people who don't have enough to live, struggle to get by day to day. 
um, so they spend their time trying to find a way to make a little more money so they can live normally just to, to be able to live, to get by but those people are living comfortably but are concerned about more wealth either because they want to purchase more or they're concerned about the future, as we mentioned so a lot of human nature is, is always to worry about the future so they're happy, even though you have what you need today but you worry about the future one is in either of these groups it's very difficult to find time for Torah mitzvahs one of the things that Talmud discusses extensively is the concept of um, there's there's the challenge of wealth and there's also the challenge of being poor People, we, are, we like to think that it's only challenging to be to not to have money there's just as much of a challenge as well of wealth as a matter of fact the Talmud discusses um, it brings various examples of people it says when you get up to heaven you're judged so it says this guy's going to say listen I didn't have any money I didn't have time to, to learn Torah I didn't have time to, to do any acts of kindness I just didn't have money so they bring Hillel as the proof as the antidote to that he was someone who says he used to he didn't have a cent to his name and he would go onto the roof of the yeshiva they wouldn't let him in because he had to pay to get in and he would listen from the uh, from the from the sunroof through the sunroof he's one day he got you know snowed he got buried under a snowdrift uh, long story and they bring um, people who say because of their wealth they didn't have time to they're so busy making their money they don't have time wealth is also is also a challenge so the point is so the, the idea of the man according to this commentary saying the idea the purpose of the man was God was wanted to give them this spiritual life in the desert it's 40 years in the desert prior to them going into Israel which by the way this is one of the reasons we, and I think we discussed this here in the past it says they didn't want to go after the 40 years as we know the spies the whole story they didn't want to go into the land of Israel so what's going on so God told them to go and what were they scared of so one of the things they discussed is this concept they were living the spiritual life in the desert the goal of the, of the manna was they shouldn't have to worry about income they shouldn't have to worry about Parnassah they don't <coughs> every day whatever they need is provided for them so there's no they didn't have to worry about materialism they had everything they needed and therefore they can focus on they received the Torah at Sinai, <coughs> and they can focus on pure spirituality when they, when they had to go into the land of Israel so now it was an agricultural society they all would have to get to work become farmers and, and, uh, and that was very scary for them they, they said why should we give up our total spiritual life we have here in the desert to now to now um, to uh, to worry about materialism okay so that was one of the issues before the, when they entered the land of Israel so that's what he's saying here so he says both these are there are also people living comfortably but are concerned more about wealth as we said if one of in either of these groups it's very difficult to find time for Torah and mitzvah there, there will always be another opportunity to make a little more money whether it be because you need the money or you need to expand whatever the case is for your future it's rare to find someone who's satisfied with what he has and is not overly concerned about the future and is able to dedicate quality time to Torah and Mitzvah. So, and the, and the Talmud talks about this concept of what's called Yesh Mana Rotsu Masayim. There's no one who's satisfied with what they have. There's no such thing. Human nature is you have $100, you want 200 You have 200 Make your first million, you want your second million. No one is, you know, just sits back and says, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to retire. Actually, I have a, a group of guys I meet with on Thursday, Beth Israel, a group from Beth Israel. And uh, one of the guys, he, he asked me to speak, he wants to speak to me, after he wants to meet with me privately. So this guy, I'm not going to give him too many details, I don't want to know who he is, but he ran a major hedge fund, hedge fund he retired, multimillionaire young guy in his 40s, and he's, his problem was, he said, that, you know, he day trades now, he sits at home, he teaches a lot of university economics, he said that he's just not happy in his life, this guy has everything. He needs beautiful house, beautiful wife, kids. Money. And he Security. says, he, he looks at his friends, they're making all his money. <laughs> and he says, he's just not happy. He wants to know why he's not happy. That's his question. It's fascinating. So he, this guy has everything he needs. He needs millions of dollars put away in the bank. No need to make more money. But he looks at his neighbors in there, he says, look, they're, they're making all his money. And he's not. He's retired now. <laughs> it's a good problem to have. But the point is, right, so, so th this is human nature. Yesh mana. you have $100, you want 200 You have a million, you want two million. There's no, you can never satiate it with what you have. That's, that's human nature. So it says in the desert, God didn't want the people to have such challenges, and therefore he set up a system both ways, meaning that the poor people and the people of means, where it's impossible to struggle with Parnassus. First of all, everyone had enough to eat. The mana spoiled every day, so you couldn't hoard it. There was no constant saving couldn't save, like, as we said. If you kept it, it got worn. The money was co collected each day and not each week, so one couldn't possibly barter for something else, even short term. So there was no bartering, there was no, basically there was no commerce going on. 
So you couldn't complain, why? I'm busy doing business. Nothing. It was a total spiritual life. That's what God was trying to set up in that sense. The mana was collected today, um, like I said, number four. When they collected the mana, there were people whose tendency was to overestimate, and this is what you mentioned, um, what was needed for the family, and people whose tendency was to underestimate. Both of, the, both of these types ended up with the same amount. Teach a lesson that although it is impossible to earn exactly what one needs, one should try to find that balance. So I mean, this is what seemed to be implying the Jewish philosophy is nothing wrong with making money, but you know, once you have what you need, then there's no, you know, there's nothing wrong, again, with, again, living a life of luxury, but that you can no longer use your business as an excuse why you're too busy to do, to, to do whatever you have to do for the community. That's the point. Torah mitzvah-wise, and, and you don't have time. So you have to find that balance of, of what you need. That's what he seems to be implying. And he says this is also why he explains uh, God used the language we said before in the verse. Deuteronomy, this is a test. It's a test. What was a test? So this was a test. God, this allowed God to test when there are no excuses because of Parnas. When someone has no excuses, will they still be able to observe and say, no, I still... The point is everyone at some point, no matter what stage of your life is, you find an excuse. Well, you know, now's the right, not the right time. People always tell me, Rabbi, when I retire, that's when I'm going to start coming to your class. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's no, there's no uh, when you retire. It's always, uh, there's no excuses. That was the point. That was the test here um, that God was trying to show. That's one aspect. Um, and that's it. It was a commentary on, on the Torah. Um, lived in the 1920s um, in, in, uh, in Europe. So he says like this, he says a similar idea, he says the Mechelta, number two here, quotes the Medrash that says that one has what to eat, if one has what to eat today and is worried about tomorrow, that's considered a person who lacks, who lacks faith. Which again, is a very hard concept as well, that's why yeah. the Medrash said it. Obviously you have to be concerned about tomorrow too. There is, it's a good thing, saving is not a bad thing. Um, being concerned about how you're going to eat tomorrow is not necessarily a bad thing. So he explains that it's referring to someone who's saying they can't learn Torah today because they're worried about their future. They have what they need today, but they're worried about their future. That's why they have to. So that's, what, that's how he interprets it. But I guess yet, but there is a trade-off in the sense that, <coughs> obviously, you're in your 30s, 40s, and 50s. You're going to work to a certain extent because you do have to set aside for your 70s and 80s. So uh, we, we, can't just, we, can't, well, we can't just say, well, I'm not going to, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just work my eight hours, all right, and not put aside, because I have faith that Hashem will take care of me in my 70s and 80s and not have any money left on You're right. There is a balance. No, 100%. Has. So, first of all, I agree with you. Today, by the way, it's not 70s, 80s, it's 90s, uh, you know. <laughs> you can never, yes. that's the problem. One of the problems today is say with all the retirement savings only helps you till you're in your 70s, 80s. It's not going to, the problem is people are living so long today that retirement funds don't cover. Mm-hmm anyone anymore people are living till 100 yeah. or 90s so it's a problem um, that's why they have long term care insurance now there's all these new insurances which cover you for later in life which is a good thing Rabbi I got a really quick yeah. question then, just let me just finish his addressing okay. all right. his Sorry. point so, so, so Brian no so you're right I think 100% we're not saying you shouldn't you shouldn't worry about tomorrow what we're saying is at the point where you're okay you're more or less okay to continue to say, well, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm going to work 18-hour days and I don't have time for anything else, for, for synagogue or whatever it is. You know, people use their livelihoods as an excuse for a lot of things. You know, can't be on the board, can't be on the, you know, I can't do stuff for the shul, I can't, you know, this, it's always be used as an excuse. That's what we're saying. I'm not saying saving is a bad thing. What we're saying is, at a certain point, you should be okay enough that you can't use your work anymore is making a living as an excuse for not doing and your so Torah and 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 not learning Torah not the, right. the, the, the issue of not studying that <clears throat> <aside>. <clears throat> so the idea of saving and working a few extra hours here and there to prepare for your late years retirement that's not giving up faith that Hashem right. take care of Yes, uh, but again, it doesn't mean. Right, the issue is, do I have to? Do I have to have um, how much do I have to put away? It doesn't to put fall away. This category one million or two million today, but I don't have. But I'm worried about tomorrow. Yeah, so that's why. That's why. He's, that's that, exactly that why he's explaining it. Okay. He's saying it's only referring to an excuse not to learn Torah. You know, it's saying I don't have time because mm-hmm. I'm busy. Mm-hmm. That you know, it's because you have to save. Doesn't mean again we're not talking about someone who should quit your job and 
learn Torah all day. We're talking about just the fact, you know, to, to come to a class or whatever it is, to study um, daily or weekly. That's what we're saying. You can't, can't use that as an excuse. Tomorrow can't be an excuse. What was your question? I have a question that just goes back to, to being in the desert. And it just mm-hmm. something just occurred to me, and I wonder what you thought about it. Since, since the giving of the manna made everything equal for everybody, and there was no commerce, and they weren't worrying about bartering, and they weren't worrying about making a living, do you suppose then that that was set up so that since, since receiving the Torah was so new for the Jews, that they could spend all their time learning about the Torah so that when they went to regular everyday life, whatever that might have been, you know, when once they entered the land of Israel and they had to deal with being, being in that type of culture, they would, they would have in mind, ingrained in them, what the Torah teaches well, for and sure, how. For sure, that was the, this was the initial. It was like the training ground. They just ground. received the Torah. Yeah. So the, the, the training was, ground. At this point, to be totally spiritual <clears throat> so they can focus on mm-hmm. this concept. They were still, also, you have to realize, they were slaves before. And learn, yeah, learning coming from those Egypt yeah, yeah. from, yeah. you know, working 12, you know, 20 hour days, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And now, all of a sudden, they get the Torah, this whole they're form being formed as a nation. Clearly, that was the goal, and mm-hmm. that's why it was only there. Today, on the contrary, as, as you talk about, you're not supposed to. I mean, there are those in Israel who do it, but it's it's not. As not as a Jew, you're not supposed to just quit your job and learn all day. It's not the goal. Right, right. The goal is you're supposed to use, as we'll talk about, use your livelihood and use your being part of this world is very important. Using that in the service of, of Hashem, so that's part of. It, as and and maintaining the balance. Yes. that the Torah always yes. talks about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if Hashem <coughs> knows everything. Then was it his plan to have them complain so we could so that manna system started? So what's this thing about? What the manna, the manna system. No, yes. Yeah, so so, so, so the Jews had a complaint for that to happen. It just yes. Yeah, so they discussed why was their complaint proper or not. So we co- according to what this is how it was. It was yes, uh, so maybe yes. They do say about the manna. It's interesting because they also <coughs> had these quail that fell down, yeah. and it says that wasn't proper. They wanted meat, so mm-hmm. it's actually interesting on the topic mentioned before about Whole Foods and vegetarian restaurants. Because the, the, it says they also complained, even about after the, the month, they wanted month, they wanted meat. Where's the beef? Yeah. And God said, so it says that was not a valid complaint. To complain that we want, you know, f- stuff to sustain us, food, that's valid. But mm-hmm. be, meat is something, you don't need meat to live. Right? Today you can, <laughs> in Texas maybe, but, um, the point is, you, you, you can get this guy, going back to my friend vegetarian, showed me how the certain, you need certain proteins, actually had a sister who was vegetarian, when she got pregnant, the doctor said she has to eat meat. So today, they, you, there's, you can, from soybeans and other various vegetables, you can combine them together and you can get the same protein as meat. You can get whatever proteins you need from meat, you can get it from vegetation. So you don't need meat to survive. Therefore, asking, the point was, when they complained about the meat, that says it wasn't valid because they had no right, because that's pure pleasure. Meat is just, it's extra in life. You don't need that to survive. Um, bread, grains, and other vegetation, you need to survive. You can't live without it, as opposed to meat. So they do discuss, so their complaint was proper for the man, but not for the meat, not to complain about where's the beef. Um, and by the way, it says that really, that you see that on this high spiritual level, really we shouldn't be eating meat. And originally we discussed this when we discussed vegetarianism, that the world, when the world was created initially, it was told the first ten generations of the world were vegetarians. God did not permit man to eat uh, meat. It's only after the flood, where there was a downfall of man, that God permitted Noah to, to partake of meat. So it is interesting. So you see, and here too, you see similar kinds. On the highest level, they had, on the high spiritual level, they shouldn't be eating meat. Okay. Um, ah, really? Uh, but we we thank God we do allow <coughs> meat. <to. laughs> Okay. Next class, we'll just have the quinoa. So, that, so then that, that means that if so, that might explain why some people believe then that being a vegetarian puts them on a higher spiritual level because yeah, you're so really yeah, not we don't, to eat The Torah meat. does allow us to eat, therefore we, it is permitted. We don't like doing it for ideological reasons, but technically speaking, yes, if someone really <coughs> is on that higher spiritual level. I, nev- I never heard that. There are many okay. big rabbis, holy rabbis, who don't only meet on Shabbat. During the week, they only meet on Shabbat. Ah, Friday, 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 Friday. Okay, so some other pointers here. So number three. Um, so, so this is what we talked about before. Another lesson, talk about the man, is uh, something no. I said. No, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, so it says like this. It says the Malbim, another commentary um, on the on the Bible, on the Torah. He says like this. He says. Um, 
He says, Parashamon teaches us the following lessons about faith. First of all, that everything, they, the goal of the man, God was, wanted to show them that everything is in God's hands. Meaning your livelihood, your, is, your sustenance, is all dependent on God. You might think, you know, we have a skill and we're, you know, we're good at buying and selling, X, whatever it is. Um, but, the, but the lesson of the man was, no, everything comes from God. Bread, our main source of sustenance, is spiritual. Meaning one should view sustenance as a spiritual endeavor and not a means of seeking physical pursuits. This is what we're talking about. Meaning that even um, Judaism, different than other religions, were not about uh, abstinence and, um, you know, uh, I forgot the, right, the word I'm looking for, you know, cutting ourselves off from materialism. On the contrary, there's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with living the good life. Um, as long as you understand, meaning you're using it and you understand even your livelihood, it's a spiritual endeavor. The goal, as we mentioned before, of of being in this world is being part of the spirit of the physical world, and using the physical, sort of raising the spirit, the physical, um, using it in the service of Hashem, using it as a spiritual means. So that's the point of making money is a great thing. If it's if the purpose, if, if that's not your goal, if your goal is just to make money, meaning that that's not. Says the next one. What I wrote that here. Um, if that's the <coughs> If your goal is just to make money, right here, if you look at number five, you turn the page from Rabbi Salvation, he says, found this quote from him, he says, All parnasa, all your income comes from God and helps one establish boundaries between work and observance. One realizes that just the collecting, as collecting the mana was a mitzvah, God told him to go out every day to pick up this mana, a commandment from God, earning a living, simply a mitzvah and not an independent goal. Meaning, mm-hmm. you're learning a living is not, it shouldn't be the goal is earning a earning a living so I can buy a, a nicer car it's it might be earning a living so I can go on a cruise to make my wife happy that's a spiritual endeavor but you can use your making money as a spiritual endeavor besides giving charity that's obvious I'm not even talking about that I'm talking about um, using your money besides using money for good things meaning giving it to good organizations such as JEI um, the, there's another aspect which is that I, even going on vacation say I want to make money because I want to take my family on a nice vacation that is a spiritual endeavor. If now your family, you'll have a better relationship with your wife, have a better marriage, you'll have, uh, you'll, you'll, the kids will appreciate you more and they'll come back refreshed. You'll come back refreshed and be able to come and study more Torah because you had a vacation. So then your vacation now becomes, or you're making more money, becomes now a spiritual, spiritual man. So it's a mitzvah works. to make more money. I buy, find care and buy and read from Steve here. It's a spiritual endeavor. Exactly. Yes, yes. Right. If that's going to make, if you're doing it to improve your relationship. To improve my relationship with my wife. Right, exactly. So the, the, the point is, and that's a key point, Judaism, a very important aspect, and especially when it comes to business ethics, which is every aspect of, of your business is a mitzvah. Making money is a mitzvah. Again, if your, goal, if your goals are the proper goals. Again, and then goal doesn't mean I'm only going to give away all my money to charity. That's not what it means. It means I'm going to use my money in the service of Hashem, whatever, whatever it be, in improving my relationships, in in uh, being a better person, I'm gonna feel. I'm gonna feel. You know, if I know I, I achieved something today, I feel better coming home from work. I did I'm a good job at the office. This afternoon, uh, I'm gonna up our lending rates this afternoon. Thank you. And when you took out that loan, you say it's a spiritual, a spiritual increase. Well, what, you know, what, what yeah. one point you'll big get for Hashem? <laughs> you'll get less money if you do that. He just told me. No, he's not. He doesn't charge interest to Jews. He's under the prevailing rate. <laughs> so, so hundred percent. So, you know, that's that's exactly what he's saying here. Livelihood in other in other religions. They look at um, wealth as a you know it's something we should right as you take vows of poverty in Judaism there's no such thing as a vow of poverty it's not a necessarily a good thing um, there's nothing wrong with making money achieving living nicely again with the proper goals it shouldn't be if the goal is to make money that's your that's your ends that's the that's your goal and that's not a good thing but if, it's, if, you're, if you're going to use it for the right purposes that's if a person in his lifetime, just makes money for himself, all right, and does not donate to charity. But he makes enough of a living that he's providing for his family. And is, is that a bad thing? No. So if he do, if the person doesn't have enough to give to charity in the country, he doesn't have to give. You only obligate to give if you have extra. Charity begins at home. That's a Jewish concept. Charity begins at home, so you have to take care of your family before you give. 
money away. Even though it says that you have to tithe 10% of your, if, if your income? Yeah, so first of all, the mo that 10 most, is say, not charity anyway. most say that if you can't afford the 10%, you're not obligated. First of all, it's not clear. We spoke about it here. It's not clear. The whole 10% thing is biblical, rabbinical. But if you can't afford it, many say you can give that charity to your family. Meaning if you have to, mm -hmm. if you have to marry off your kids, so that, that tithing can go to marrying off your kids. That's a mitzvah too. It's also charity. Charity begins at home. So if someone can't afford to give to others <coughs> on the country, you have to take care of your family first. We discussed in, when we discussed the laws of charity, there's a whole hierarchy of, of priorities. So you have to give your family, even your ex-wife comes before giving to uh, the Red Cross. Okay. So. Not that I haven't. Okay, so, so, there, um, so let's just finish off here. So it says, um, another, another lesson, it says, number three, in the bottom of, of the right side, it says, a person does not need to travel great distances to find Parnassus. People think they have to go overseas. Again, if you believe in this concept, philosophy, that God is the one providing, so he, you don't have to travel to to wherever to Singapore. Um, to, to I'm done. That's right. <laughs> no more travel. Oh, you should have invited your wife. So you you know if God will provide again. Obviously, listen. If, if that's your only source of income, of course. Yeah. I'm not saying you, it's prohibited to travel. If it's necessary. But, but part of it is, yeah. if you believe in this philosophy that God is the one, everything comes from God. At the end of the day, so you can find a few in use. You don't have to go to Singapore. Effort is required as you find that they had to go out and get it, but they didn't have to travel great distances. Of course, you have to make the effort. Again, you can't sit at home and, and say God will provide. Yeah. Of course, there needs to be effort. I've tried that. It doesn't work. Okay, number four. Someone has enough to support himself. He shouldn't worry too much about the future. Again, you're allowed to worry, but it shouldn't be overly... Uh, okay, now the back. Um, another interesting thing I found from Larry Hirsch, the commentary on the Chumash. He was the leader of German Jewry before until the 1920s. He died in the 20s in Germany. Um, so he, he also says, he says, one of the lessons is that uh, he talks about the monarch, your livelihood is never going to be a conflict, assuming you're ethical and you're doing things right, it's never going to be a conflict with your, with your Jewish observance. As people many times say, well, Shabbat, I, got, I have a business, I can't, I can't observe Shabbat because I've got to make money, I've got to support my family. So he says that one of the lessons from the man you see is it can never do, there will never be a conflict. You won't, no one can claim that their parnasa um, is a conflict to the Judaism. Okay, you can't use that as an excuse. And this was right. unfortunate, by the way, to your Judaism, to your observers. Um, in, so in, the, in the 30s, the by the way, before the blue laws, people, well, that was the main thing. People, were, <coughs> if you didn't work on Shabbos, yeah. you get fired. You come back and Texas suddenly get fired. Texas, what? Well, I think you had Saturday or Sunday. Yeah, you can choose. Yeah, in the Northeast, it wasn't like the yeah, people right. would. They have to, many people got fired from their jobs if they tried. Them. That's why many people stopped observing Shabbat. So, but he's saying there's no such thing. The lesson here is it's not a conflict. Um, so I just want to finish. Actually, there's an interesting Rebbeinu Bachaya, who was a Rishon, an early authority. And as you see, he died in 1340. So he writes that there's a custom that people would say this. This parsha, the portion of the month, they would say it daily, and he says that um, says anyone. This is what he says. And look at number three. He says we have a tradition that one who recites these words on a daily basis is guaranteed that he will never lack of sustenance. So, which sounds, we, you, as Jews, we usually don't believe in superstitions. Saying words is going to bring us. Sounds strange, and people do this. By the way, there are many people I know. If you look in the arts consider, it has these words parsha a month. People say it on a daily basis, especially people who are worried about their income. So uh, people say it's a, what we call a skula. Skula means it's like a, kind of like using the word good luck charm, but some type of heebie-jeebie thing. You say this and you guarantee it's like It's like strange. We usually, as Jews, we don't like believing in it. So I found the Chafetz Chaim explains. He says, of course, it doesn't mean, you know, you say these words, now all of a sudden, guaranteed you're going to have a good deal today, you know, your stock's going to go up. Of course, that's not what it means. He says, the purpose of recitation, if you look at B, this is the Chafetz Chaim talking. He lived in, um, died in 1933. Um, he was famous, he wrote many books, but one of them was a commentary on the Shulchan Aruch and the Code of Jewish Law. So when he, the, the Shulchan Aruch mentions that some have a custom to say Parshat Aman, these words, on a daily basis. And that um, helps for your income, so to speak. So he says, of course, it doesn't mean it's a magic trick. You say the words, and now all of a sudden I, my, the market's going to go up today. He says, the purpose of the recitation is to internalize the message that whatever God decides for a person is what he's going to get. 
as it states, whoever gathered more, quoting the man, did not have extra, whoever took less was not lacking. Meaning, it's to internalize the concept, as we said, that everything comes from God. That if, you, if, if you recognize that fact, then you'll have it easier. Your, your, your income will be easier. So it's interesting. Not necessarily, it doesn't mean you're going to become rich, because I'm cognizant the fact that everything comes from God. So he explains like this. See, he says, as such as possible, that the guarantee for a person who recites Pashtaman is not a guarantee he'll be wealthier. Rather, guarantee he'll be satisfied with his lot. So, meaning, if I understand that God provides, and this is, that means if I'm only, if my, uh, if I'm only getting, uh, I'm only making my, uh, whatever, my $100,000 this year as opposed to 500000 that's all I need. That means God made that decision, and that's all I need this year. And therefore, I'll be happy with what I have. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the point. The point is not, again, the point is, doesn't mean it's a magic trick, you're going to become wealthy. That's what people think. I say these words every day, now I'm going to be wealthy. It's being cognizant of the fact that it's God who provides. And therefore, if God is saying, you know, you're, you're, you're okay, you could make it this year with this amount, so you'll make it this year with this amount. Being cognizant of that fact, which I found was a fascinating uh, bit of information. Thank you very much. Our next class is very next interesting. two weeks from today is Martin Luther King Day. You open? I'm okay. So we're going to have a special uh, class. What would you say? We're close. It's MLK. Yeah. yeah. Two weeks from today, from this Monday. Well, yeah, well, it makes no difference to me. Should. He's a great no, I'm person. Sure. <laughs> Should be celebrating his life. Uh, they will be here. Uh, nah, I used to live in Atlanta. Nah. Uh, don't talk about it. So, so what was it in Europe? Oh, we're going to stay. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, when? Just me and Lainey. When we met up with uh, uh, a friend of mine and his two daughters. Mm-hmm. And you stayed just in the city? Was it, you had the cold spell? Yeah, we were there. 15 below? Uh, no. 20s and 30s. Uh, was it snowing? No. We went to the Jewish Museum. One morning. Uh, been two great shows. Well, that sounds like something I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chagall. Lady. Not in the Jewish Not in the not cartoons. Really? Well, New York had their cartoons. Not, not the eternal cartoons. He did the cover. Your Hebrew name. I met my wife in Israel, so we go by our Hebrew name. He's still alive. Changed her legally. Okay. Your, your wife met him. Yeah, Ronit. Yeah. So we did that. I should know the airport. Yeah. Well, what was her what was your English name? I said we had this restaurant. Go down. Oh, Rhonda. Okay. Changed it to Ronit. Yeah. Called Easy Corn. Easy Corn. That's Kanky. I know where Easy Corn is. Yeah. What's your Hebrew name anyway? Right behind Easy Corn. Really, I grew up with Irish. Oh, Brian. It's from Mon. And there is no big sign. You see, it's very nice. Question. What is it? It's more like yuppie, but. Benzion Cowan. Okay. Yeah, I think you'd like it. Benzion. So, Benzion. I think this part here. Benzion. So, we're working with the Jews. We're Jewish names. We're Anyway, so when they call, take the call. She's going to ask you, do you have the equipment? Is it what you want? He does everything. Yeah. You go do something. Are you going to raise your forklift? Yes. Because that's part of the challenge. We're going to see those challenges. Yeah. If you've heard me, 
Because what he has to find yeah. something. Suppose be somebody was running around. Who can you teach us? You can go this. I need to go with the I told the rabbi earlier in the day that we weren't going to be able to be at that class, so he knew, and I'm sorry if he was late and he wasn't open up. Was he? No, we were there like 7.31, we already started. Oh, okay, so he got, see, because Dave used to, you know, he takes care of setting his head up, so maybe the rabbi was going to have to be there early. It was all done. Yeah, somebody did it, or he did it. I don't know. I saw him this morning, he was putting together pictures for his parents. 50th wedding anniversary, something like that. And I was the office. His parents, 50 years? Yeah. They're married that long? Maybe it's 40. I don't think it's 50. I want to say, when I first met them, I thought they were married 38, so I didn't want to like it 40. Gotcha. He's putting the album together. 